Hello everyone, welcome to second episode of Training Chats with Israel El Mladen. Uh, hi Israel, how are things going with you, man? Hey man, how are you? I'm good. Uh, ready to have a nice chat about training and whatever else comes up. Oh, uh, so perfect. Uh, I'm currently in Buenos Aires uh, and I'm trying to get my life kind of organized. So I'm staying here for like a, a month and changing places. So it's a little bit hectic. Uh, mm-hmm. but we, we're going to try to do these chats more regularly and, uh, you know, just cover the, the basics. Uh, so last time we started with introducing the <clears throat> general concept of the, of the chats. And in this episode, as we, uh, promised, we're going to continue talking about the evidence-based medicine, uh, and, and how that can be applied in, uh, sport science. So. Yeah. Do you mind Israel just talking a little bit more about that? And in the last last episode, you mentioned a book called The Philosophy of Evidence Based Medicine, which, yeah. which which I downloaded on my Kindle, but haven't had a chance to actually read. So I'm gonna, as we go through these episodes, I'm probably gonna finish it, and I'm gonna have more more material mm-hmm. to offer. But you're the guy yeah. to uh, to discuss this topic. So go ahead. Yeah, well, first, I don't know if I'm the guy, but I do take a lot of interest in it. And I think this is a very interesting topic for a number of reasons. Uh, the first being that we just hear the term evidence-based practice all the time in the exercise world, right? Whether you're a coach, a physical therapist, uh, a scientist, we hear evidence-based practitioner, evidence-based. And I always wonder when I hear this term or when I read this term, what is the uh, the speaker or the writer me- means by that. What is, um, and I think this is worthy of a discussion. So first, let's define, let, let's discuss slightly about the history of evidence-based medicine before it turned into an evidence-based practice, because this, th- this uh, approach started with medicine. And it's a relatively new uh, perspective, I suppose we can call it, that uh, started somewhere in the early 90s. And without going into too much detail, what uh, some a number of doctors, uh, medical doctors in Canada, uh, thought to themselves that it's time to de-emphasize two particular aspects in medicine, uh, which were um, the uh, experience or the expertise of the doctors that were making calls based on their expertise, based on the fact that they were appealing to their own authority. And that's how medicine, according to them, uh, was taught. So... Uh, that, that was the first pillar, perhaps, of, uh, of how it started to, to develop, to de-emphasize uh, authorities. And the second one is to also de-emphasize uh, physiological mechanisms explaining or attempting to explain different diseases and other aspects related to medicine. And in contrast to that, what they wanted to emphasize more is comparative studies. So randomized controlled trials in which we divide a sample into a number of groups. One group receives treatment A. The second group could receive nothing. So there'll be a control group. A third group can receive a placebo and possibly a fourth group could receive a a different type of treatment. And then you compare them. Of course, not all four groups have to be compared at the same study. And in fact, we will rarely see something of that nature. But essentially, we're talking about comparing two groups to each other and seeing which one is superior. And based upon these outcomes, uh, this is what should lead the decision-making processes. Now, saying that, it doesn't mean that 
they said or they recommended that expertise should be completely discounted. Uh, same thing for physiological mechanisms. They should not be discounted, but the hierarchy of the evidence should, uh, should be in a, in a way that randomized controlled trials or competitive studies are at the top of a pyramid. Now, before going on, I should say that this has changed and is going through modifications in the past 20, 30 years. It's, uh, it's a moving target, but this in a, in a, in a nutshell is what they proposed. And I think this is, uh, important to realize because sometimes when I hear someone saying evidence-based, I think what they may be referring to is that they just rely on science or just relies on, on, um, publications, scientific publications. Um, and I'm not sure that this is what the term stands for. So in a way, the term evidence-based practice is, in my view now, a bit like functional training. It's a very vague term that means many different things to many different people. So I would say that it would be a wise move to start defining what one's, what a person means when using that term. Because uh, when I use it, I'm, I am very specific into what I mean, which is the integration between scientific outputs. And that could include randomized controlled trials. That could in include correlational studies, essentially any study. And I'll give each and each and every study a different weight in my decision making processes. But that's only one channel that I'll use to make a decision. The other ones may be my own experiences, of course, as a coach, uh, as an ex athlete who has experienced a lot and I would think that I've gained a fair bit of wisdom and knowledge doing what I do for so many years. So that would be the second channel. And then the third one, of course, is the athlete in front of me that I have to account for their preferences and not only just their preferences, but also their uh, background. Are they injured and so on and so forth. So I have to create this uh, mishmash of all these different channels and base upon their integration, make a decision. And by a decision, I mean everything. That could be which exercises we use, how many sessions a week we're going to do, and any other practical decision aspect involved in the coaching processes. Okay, that's a great, great uh, description. Uh, the, the thing that, if you could explain the difference between, say, evidence-based practice and practice-based evidence. So, I would say that uh, it, it seems like it's a two-way street, as you're saying. So, you, we can derive or deduct uh, a practice from from research, but you can also uh, kind of deduct the best practices uh, from the practices itself, if that makes sense. So what have been done over the years and things like that. So uh, I know in, in sport, uh, in sport performance, we have this, uh, I would say a bias of, we have been doing this like this all, you know, all over uh, the history. So, you know, this is the, the thing we've been doing. And then you have on the flip side, you have like a, opposing view of evidence-based science so the like a research-based ideas of what works and what doesn't and what you've been saying is like a way to kind of reconcile the, the two streams so like i would say a top-down and a bottom-up approach so like i try to figure out what what are the best practices from you know tinkering in the field actually what's being actually applied with the athletes so you know, that's a, like a bottom-up approach and something that comes from a top-down, like from a design uh, study or randomized control studies and try to fit both of these informations in a, in a, you know, something that you can rely to when you make decisions as a coach. 
Yeah, 100%. And I'll tell you what, the one thing that bothers me the most is when I see these, uh, so to speak, wars between those who advocate the experience or their years on the field doing the coaching versus a scientist who's supposed and I hate it as if one is against the other because any intelligent person should obviously try to combine both and give each a different uh, weight as a function of the situation in front of you. So if there's an athlete that has a particular needs, and let's say there's a lot of high quality research out there that can guide me, then I'll place a lot of weight in my decision-making processes on the research that has been done on this very particular um goal that the athlete needs uh but if on the other hand there is a particular um goal of the athlete that i have a lot of experience with and there's very little research of lower quality then i'll possibly place more weight on my experience and the decision making processes so what i'd like to think of this as a moving target it's not always this equal this uh, contribution from each channel but the contribution changes as a function of who's in front of you and what are, what are the goals and then what what each channel can provide and assist with in the decision making processes but one thing i i'm very clear about and i'm strongly opinionated about is that it should never be an either or despite the fact that we routinely see this we see coaches who uh who don't who disrespect scientists i've seen that it's like oh i don't care about your research i don't care about the statistics and that is obviously a mistake because by doing that, you're discounting uh, a lot of quality information that is bu- that has been conducted and collected from a large uh, sample, which is obviously strong. And it was compared to something else. And there's a high degree of internal validity in the sense that there's a st- we can have a higher degree of certainty in the cause and effect relationship and all the other benefits that we get by doing studies. So they're just discounting that. And based on what? Why wouldn't you want to hear what the scientist has to say if it could possibly assist you? So that's one that one uh, side of things. And then the other, we sometimes see scientists who are a bit arrogant and they don't really care what the applied practitioner has to say and what he or she has observed in the field and how that may be implemented and guiding particular future research questions. So I also, I've also encountered that, which is also a horrible mistake because what we end up seeing is scientists who are answering questions that no one is asking. Yeah. Uh, and that to me is a huge mistake, right? We're just publishing things that affect no one. And yes, there's always that, I've heard that um, excuse almost. It's like, well, who knows? They might change something in the future. And yeah, that's true. But at the same time, if we're in the business of applied exercise science, then I would say that we need to see some sort of an applied aspect to it, be it immediately or with a bit of uh, thought experiment, but I need to know that what a, an applied exercise scientist is doing is indeed applied to what is happening on the field, right? Yes, I, I just finished a book by Nassim Taleb, and you probably know I'm, I'm a big fan. Uh, yeah. So the book title is uh, Skin in the Game, and he actually talks about this uh, academic world where academ- academics are judged by other academics, and that's a problem according to mm. him. Because the academics needs to be judged by a consumers of the, those information. And in this case, th- those are coaches and athletes. So the problem is that academics write for academics. And uh, no that's one, a really good point. No a one, very good point. No one reads like no one in, in this way. I'm referring to coaches. 
coaches don't read scientific uh, articles. But luckily now we have we have other people, I would say, like a buffer that kind of translate that scientific stuff and you know put it on a social media, and the coaches can actually yeah. uh, digest that stuff. So rather than going to the to the uh, scientific source, in this case, a journal, they can check stuff online, and we have like yeah. aggregate systems, uh, podcasts and stuff like that, that kind of bridge the gap. But at the end of the day, if, if, if your science, as you mentioned, is not applied, uh, then it's like, uh, it's a exercise in futility or it's like academic publisher perish stuff. Yeah. And then also not to mention, I mean, yes, there is, there's these problems, of course, but even if it is applied, I mean, usually it's not a question of either or it's not the, uh, results of a study is either applied or not applied. There's a, a, um, a scale. There's a spectrum. It could be, you know, it could have a high degree of external validity in that regard that we can easily apply the results of a given study in our population and in our environment. So that would be a high, it's a, it's a question of degree. It's not a question of absolute uh, answers of yes or no. And then sometimes you see studies that have the potential to be applied. But then the intervention is a bit too extensive or a bit too remote from what might might happen in the field. And then you have to wonder, does it really apply if, let's say, I'll try to mimic what I as a coach commonly see takes place in the gym or takes place in the field? Uh, if I uh, double the amount of the intervention, for example, st- stretching, I think stretching is a good example to illustrate that because for many years, we uh, there's a lot of research that came out showing that if you stretch static stretch for an extended period of time and immediately after that perform a, a, a maximal effort explosive task say a counter movement jump or a sprint then the stretching will hinder your performance but and i fell into that trap as well i was like oh well then we shouldn't static stretch and i'm not advocating that we should always static stretch and all that but once you look take a careful look at the types of interventions for the most part, the stretching interventions were very long. So above a minute, sometimes a minute and a half, and then there's barely any break between the stretch and the outcome measure. And that rarely mimics what would happen um, in, a, in real life settings. So someone would stretch a little bit, probably seven to 10 seconds, and then he'll probably jog a little bit or do some other dynamic activity. And there's probably gonna be a couple of minutes, probably more, between the end of the, of the shorter stretch that takes a few seconds, the warm up, and then the time that they're actually need to perform the explosive task. And in more recent studies, we were not seeing any negative effects. We're not seeing that as long as you stretch under, let's say 30 seconds, and then there's a bit of a delay between the end of the stretch and the outcome test, usually we don't see any negative effects. So, you know, that mentioning the question of how applicable a, a research study is, we also got to ask ourselves, uh, how much does the intervention or the outcome measure mimic what may actually happen in real life? Yeah, the, <clears throat> I would say uh, the, the good example I like to mention is this idea of the, of the golem. The golem is like a creature of clay that you create. It's really powerful, but it's really stupid. Uh, and that's example gave by uh, Rachel uh, Richard McElrath, I think that's the right pronunciation, in a fantastic book called uh, uh, Statistical Rethinking, which I, I'm 
reading and rereading multiple times. So the idea is that we are dealing with a really complex world, and to understand it in scientific way, we need to create models, in this case, golems. And to create a golem, you need to make a lot of assumptions, and you need to kind of constrain that world into a a, a, a model, in this case, object, and you, you make inferences in that model. Uh, but to do so, you kind of limit all this complex, complexity, nuances, and you make a lot of assumptions. But the problem, mm. the problem that emerges is that people confuse the map for the territory. So it's like a really simplistic uh, representation of the world, and you have to do it because you want to control for for things, right? You you don't want to kind of leave things, uh, you know, say flapping around. Uh, so you want to constrain stuff so you can make uh, specific causal claims as a research scientist. But at the end of the day, also you need to apply it in a in a in a big world, in a complex world. And to do that, you need to involve that subjectivity that we just mentioned. You need to take uh, a lot of other stuff into account that are not uh, contained within the model. So, mm. in this case, in the case of stretching, is that uh, as you as you mentioned, you need to go into assumptions of the of the model and the research and see how applicable that is to a realistic situation. And to do that, you need to be you need to be subjective. So, but also what what bothers me. I would say this, uh, I would say group of people using uh, evidence-based uh, as a higher ground, if that makes sense. So they're uh, portraying themselves as having the evidence in a quotation mark while everybody else doesn't and, you know, you know selling books and selling uh, uh, conferences and, and so forth. But I would say the problem is that... Um, it's like they keep forgetting that the science changed every five years. And as you mentioned with the static stretching, five years ago, you know, static stretching was uh, disastrous. And maybe 10 or 15 years before, it was the uh, cure for cancer. Like uh, everybody should static stretch before uh, warming up. Uh, it, it, you know, it prevents injuries and so forth. Now we see, you know, science changes. So the, the thing with evidence-based is, I would say, remaining skeptical just taking things with a grain of salt rather than using an evidence-based, uh, you know, higher ground. And, you know, I see it also as a snake oil selling. So we're just selling uh, evidence-based as, as, as a product or something that's fixed. So this is, this is uh, what science says and everything else is uh, bullshit. I'll tell you what, this is a good point and I agree with it, but we should also keep in mind that we were the one who were deceived and I'm saying that as a scientist as well because the research was out there and we and they never um, hid the um, duration of the stretches and they never hid that there's not uh, a long enough delay between the end of the static stretch, for example, and the outcome measure. But we, and we're, I'll speak for myself right now, I was the one who made the logical leap and extrapolated wrongly to assume that because they did a stretch of, let's say, five minutes, had only less than a minute between the end of a five-minute stretch, and then they measured their jumping performance, and it took away from the jump height, I was the one who extrapolated wrongly that we should avoid static stretching. So I was the one, I suppose, according to the example that you provided with the golem, I was the one who made that mistake. Uh, so that also brings us back to the fact that we should be very critical and careful with how we uh, read and interpret it, the papers. 
But uh, the scientific ones. Im- imagine that in a meta study. So now the meta studies are like a peak apex of that evidence-based pyramid. Uh, you you can probably disagree with that because you know as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, things are kind of changing, shifting. But meta studies are like probably correct me if I'm wrong. Probably even higher positioned as a evidence uh, as opposed to uh, uh, randomized control tr- uh, studies. So, you know, people just plug in numbers. So that's the problem because, you know, devil's in the details. And once you made a golem made of a statistical model, uh, yeah. you know, you assume a lot of things and then you put that into a meta study. You try to represent everything with a number so you can create a, you know, graph or you can create a number. And, you know, a lot of stuff is being lost in, in details. Yeah. Yeah. And then also not to mention that garbage in, garbage out. The meta-analysis has no ability to to distinguish between different types of study designs and their quality other than their numbers. And yes, there are different inclusion criteria to, to studies quality, but at the end of the day, if there is low quality studies and their numbers are or bias studies or file drawer issues, for example, negative results that have not been published, then they will not be uh, noticeable in the meta-analysis. And the meta-analysis has no way to overcome this at present. So um, even with meta-analysis, which I'm a big fan of, of course, they have their uh, limitations as well. But, you know, the thing is this, that what I, what I would like to do is shift our discussion somewhat. We can t- and there's been a lot of discussions about study design, uh, quality of research and bias and everything else. And we can probably get back to that. But I would, what I would like to also do is to um, discuss some of the downfalls and, and perhaps also the positive aspects of being an applied practitioners. What, what, what are the problems with uh, trusting our own experiences? And for, I will start with saying that our own experiences are a function of our memory. And our memory is a very plastic, flexible, and dynamic entity that is easily influenced by a lot of things. And we know there's so much research out there showing how biased we are and how easily influenced and by all these different variables that for the most part, we're not even aware of them. So then we, we got to ask ourselves, how can we trust ourselves? So what's your take on that? I have a, I have a, like a, a story from coaching, uh, so working in football, I suggested to a coach to kind of, uh, we collect the wellness scores and stuff like that. Uh, and I'm not going to expand more into it. I, I like, you're trying to represent some complex, complex stuff with a, with a number, which is, which is, I would say has its own limitations, but it's a good conversation starter. Like, you know, if someone reports a higher soreness on the hamstring, you can call that individual inside and, you know, do some uh, talk. So it's a great conversation starter and you want the athletes to, to feel that something is being done based on the number. So rather than just modifying training, it's, it's enough to just call them in and say, okay, what's, what's all this about? But anyway, a coach, coach said like, okay, but why would I need to collect that stuff when I can like, just talk to the athletes, which is, you know, fully, uh, correct, uh, standpoint. But then I said, mm-hmm. do you remember what, you know, Jose told you? Uh, three months ago, it's, you know, it's, as you said, it's like a memory thing. So you do need to collect, collect because, uh, because you can kind of analyze it and, and, and track trends, uh, rather than relying on your memory, what someone told you like three months ago. So, 
And as mentioned before, we need to realize that it's not a magic bullet. It's like it's a still model with a lot of assumptions, which we can consult uh, and put it in a context of you know subjective uh, and I would say a subjective and a specific context we are dealing at the moment. Uh, and that gives us like a, another opinion. So with all these uh, injury prediction models and statistics and all this stuff, I, I look at them and like not like a like a solution to everything, and we need to rely only on objectivity and, and things like that. I'm I'm thinking more like a, imagine you are a like a king or someone, and you need to make a decision, and you have your advisors, and you know you might have like a two or three advisors, and at the end of the day you are making decisions. So one advisor could be you know, what, 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 what are the numbers saying? So, and the number says, you know, certain thing under, you know, as I mentioned before, there are golems, like really limited mm-hmm. and constrained, but very powerful, uh, objects, uh, that, you know, analyze the numbers based on certain assumptions, probabilities and blah, blah, blah. It gives you, you know, what's likely the inference or what's likely the prediction. But then also you might as well advise your own experience, as you mentioned before. Like if you see this scenario, you you know, uh, you you might also consult the other uh, models, uh, and the third third advisor could be the, the current context because models cannot catch all the nuances of the of the big world, so you need to put that into a context. So at the end of the day, you consult people. In this case, you consult multiple sources of knowledge, and and you make the best decision you can. And sometimes that's it's really tricky, so you need to rely on, you know, very simple rules. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, probably before on this uh, podcast and the blog, using a heuristic. So really simplified rules that are, uh, disregard a lot of information because, you know, and we can talk about it maybe maybe in the next few episodes. Uh, when things are really complex, you know, if you take all, all this stuff into account, sometimes you don't get the best decision. And there's a big research about, you know, behind this statement. So long story, long story short, uh, is that, uh, one way to avoid the bias of the memory is to track what someone said or someone done and, you know, use that as a analysis. So it's, it's similar to someone watching a game. So you might have, uh, coaches watching a game and there, you know, a certain event happened and they just blow it up out of proportion. So, Maybe someone had a bad pass. It's a one bad pass and, you know, you don't see all the, uh, 50 other good passes and you, 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 you make a statement that someone had a really bad game. So that's why you, you, you know, you have a notation analysis and things like that just to give you a, uh, I would say a more objective picture uh, rather than, you know, just making a biased conclusions. Not sure if that yeah. answers your, uh, question. Uh, it does. Definitely to, to some extent. I mean, I definitely enjoyed listening to you. Uh, what I'd like to add based on what you said is actually a few things. First, I would say I just want to insert a tip uh, based on something that you said, uh, which is if you're a coach and you want to collect data of some sorts, then you got to keep in mind that you got to, as mo- the more data you collect, the more informative the data will be. Because a lot of coaches ask me, all right, do you think we should collect heart rate? Do you think we should do this and this test? And what, and other questions of that nature. And my answer is usually, well, that also depends if you're going to be able to routinely collect this over time. And it's not just going to be something that's sporadic. Because if it's sporadic, you're not going to be able to tell whether it's noise or an actual pattern. 
And for that, especially with a limited number of participants, you need a lot of data points. So then this comes down to logistics. If, if you are not going to be able for whatever reason to collect this outcome measure over time on a routinely basis, and only after a while will a pattern possibly emerge. So to answer, to, to, to make the point simpler, if you're going to collect something, the first thing you're going to ask yourself is whether you're going to be able to collect it over time in a stable manner, because only if you do that will you be able to pick something out of it. That's one point based on what you said. Uh, and then I really like your analogy with the king and the advisors. That actually is a, a nice way to illustrate in many ways the evidence-based approach, uh, evidence-based medicine or practice that you're just sitting there, the king or the decision maker, and you're going to have to make a decision based on information that comes from different sources. Now, the sources are different. One could be more number-based. So in that regard, it would be more objective, uh, in quotation more objective random, yeah, randomized controlled trials. The other would be your own experience. Uh, the third would be the context or the athlete's uh, preferences. Now, what I would like to add to that is that the intelligent king or the intelligent decision maker will also have a very clear idea of the positives and negatives on, in, of each and every one of these sources. And the positives are very clear and the negatives are even clearer. Uh, so I think uh, as an example, uh, basing off our own knowledge, so we know that our memory is distorted. So we might not remember what happened a few weeks ago, just like with the example that you provided. But also we may, we may think or we may actually monitor objectively that we're seeing improvements that the athlete is getting stronger or faster or whatever else. But the problem is that we don't know if we can do something else that's better. Yeah. Because essentially uh, that as you, as you say, I, I had a, um, I have a, co a coach who, who is a friend of mine and he said like, I did this training and everything's worked. So the athletes improved and, and, and everything, you know, went really well. But I was wondering if I could something different or if I could do things more, would they, improve more and that's a that's a like a that's the thing you are just mentioning and it's uh it's a good question and i don't think we have an answer so <laughs> go ahead i would say that the only answer would be from a comparative study i mean we can question whether we have a lot of high quality studies that answer the questions that we need but because they're so difficult to conduct but i would say that the only way to have an idea of whether we can do something else that's better is to, actually, is to actually compare different methods to each other over time with uh, different groups that have similar baselines and are relatively homogeneous and so on and so forth. And if treatment A or training session A is better than B, then that should give us a very clear indication, not a perfect indication because there's other, of course, downfalls of research, but at least it gives us something to work with and we don't even have anything of that nature uh, as practitioners. We but, can't compare something to something else at the, at the same time points. Uh, I think that's a, that's a fair, fair point from a research standpoint. But as a practitioner in field, uh, you don't have, you don't have possibility to conduct any type of co uh, comparative don't? study. But here's a, here's the thing. Like I, I like reading about, you know, um, science in general and statistics. Uh, and there's a, I'd say a new, new type of movement in making inferences uh, and I think it's led by Judea Pearl who's uh, one of the guys behind the artificial intelligence so and he just came with a book it, it, I think the book is called uh, the book of why or something like that I haven't read it so it just I think it's published maybe yesterday 
So uh, he talks about making inferences from correlation, which we know it's like, you know, correlation doesn't cause, uh, correlation doesn't imply causation and, and things like that. But in practice, when you collect a lot of data and, you know, that's what we do. So, you, you, you know, you do your work and then you collect the data and then you can, you can still make certain inferences in, you know, what, what's working and what could be probably done better. So I think we are on the verge of, I would say, uh, a change in sports science application, especially with the, with the new, uh, big data stuff. Uh, mm. I'm not, I'm not saying that big data is the answer. It could be a complete fluke, but, uh, it could give us idea about the co- causal links. Uh, without the randomized control uh, studies, and that could be really, really interesting in the next years to come. So, something to definitely something worth mentioning in this uh, in this discussion. Yeah, absolutely. First, this is a good point. I mean, I'd, I've heard about it, not to the extent uh, uh, that you were talking about, but to, to begin with, I should add, as we know, that you can infer causality without a randomized controlled trials. I don't think there's ever been a randomized controlled trial showing that smoking causes cancer. We've seen, we've came to that very clear and strong conclusions based on uh, observational studies. So that is possible, but the effects should be rather clear and you should have a very large data set. But perhaps as you were saying, we might approach this state in uh, the coming years in which we'll have uh, such a large sample set that it will allow us to clear the, uh, the noise from the signal in a clearer manner, which will be another source of information that could guide us in our decision-making processes. So <clears throat> the thing is, you know, at the end of the day, you need to, you need to step in front of the athletes and make decisions. So, uh, and you make those decisions with a limited amount of information. It's not like unlimited, uh, amount of information. You can, you can find the best optimal solution. And, uh, you know, it's not the sports science that, that, that's being only dealing with it. The, the people deal with this stuff for like ages and there's like a big, uh, I would say it started with, uh, artificial intelligence where they thought that if, you know, if you have a, a lot of information, you can make the best decisions, but it actually didn't happen. Uh, so, uh, there are like two branches of, uh, rationality. So one, mm. it's called the, uh, uh, unbounded rationality. So this, you know, you can find the optimal solutions if you have a lot of information. And the other branch is unbounded rationality. Uh, and I think one of the descendants of that kind of branch is uh, uh, Gerdi Gerenzer. And I think everything started also with uh, uh, Herbert Simon, who is a Nobel, uh, Nobel, Nobel, Nobel Prize winner in, I think, not sure, maybe mathematics or economy or, or something like that. Uh, for artificial intelligence. Okay. You know, I need to double check, but he definitely got a, a Nobel Prize. Uh, so he, we have those two branches and Herbert Simon is like a father of a modern artificial intelligence. So he showed that to make the best decisions that are most robust. So it works in multiple scenarios. Sometimes you need to disregard a lot of information as a noise and make a very, very simplistic. They call it fast and frugal rules. Or heuristics. So, uh, my concern is that, you know, as a coach, you, you don't have a time to wait for the research. You don't have the time to yeah. collect all the, all the data and you need to act. And, you know, there's nothing wrong in acting on very simplistic heuristics. So, and coaches have been doing that for ages, 
So, you know, the, the thing with me is like in a, in a room full of coaches, I'm going to defend sports science. And in a room yeah, full yeah. of sports scientists, I'm going to defend coaches. And I'm trying to find this middle ground and hence the name of a complementary training of my website. So I'm trying to find this middle ground and try to answer the, you know, day-to-day uh, questions that coaches have. You know, you, you just cannot wait for the research and you need to act. And, you know, how, how should you act when it comes to, you know, uh, uncertain scenarios? And I think Gerd Gigerenzer and Nassim Taleb provided a few uh, answers. And to, to finish this, uh, I would say, show uh, episode, uh, I'm going to give this example of a, a barbell strategy from Nassim Taylor. So sometimes you don't know what's going to work, but you, you need to use his precautionary principle of, you know, do not harm. So, and he also pinpoints that the negative knowledge of what doesn't work or what do harm is more robust than a positive knowledge. So hmm. I would say this is more like a protective decision making. It's like making sure you don't, you know, your ass is covered, if that makes sense. So this idea of the barbell strategy, just making sure that if if things are war, if things are wrong, it's not going to be disastrous. So just protecting from a downside. Uh, and we have the other side of the barbell is the upside. So if, if something worse is going to work like a charm, but around, I would say 80% of this like Pareto distribution is that uh, most of the stuff we need to avoid making stupid stuff rather than trying to invent like a uh, magical stuff. So, uh, you know, just making sure to do things that are being working over the, over the years, I think he called it Lindy effect. So what, what has been working for ages is still going to continue working. So, you know, we can translate that to sport is that, uh, you know, what coach has been using for ages is probably still going to work. Uh, and the, the scientists we are not going to reinvent the training process. So we need to stick to kind of making sure that we are covering all the bases and we are not making disastrous decisions. So, um, yeah, this is a good point. I, I partly agree with that. Um, in, in the sense that I don't think no one is necessarily trying to reinvent the wheel. That's point number one. And point number two, I'm not sure. I mean, I think it's it's a dangerous claim to say that what has been working forever will still work in the future because it's really hard to dilute and e- extract what is exactly working. And then there's so many parameters and so many factors that can influence what is working and what isn't working and trying to pick apart the variables that, and how they interact with, with each other. So we are working in a chaotic environment and to pinpoint what is causing here, what is is dangerous so something may be working for completely different reasons than what we think may be working and i think it's fair yeah yeah go ahead go ahead um yeah that was my point i mean from my perspective as an applied practitioner and this is why sometimes i i I love talking with you and uh, john kiley is i happily admit that i'm not sure that what i'm doing is working i'm guesstimating i'm shooting in the dark i'm hopefully i'm shooting in the appropriate direction but I'll happily admit that I'm not sure if what I'm doing is optimal. And like we said, we go back to the different sources of information. And I think I told you this in a previous chat that I like to think of what I do is I scavenge for pieces of information of various qualities. Sometimes they're better, sometimes they're worse. I think that in our field, there's a lot of noise, so it's hard to pick up high quality signals. And based upon that, based upon them, try to make 
an intelligent decision and sometimes I fail, sometimes I succeed. The problem is that I don't always know when I do what. But that's, that's the, that's the whole point of, of, you know, decision making in uncertainty. So you don't have all the information needed or all the, uh, uh, enumerated outcomes, uh, and probabilities. So it's really hard to find the optimal scenario. And, uh, you know, the decision making in, in, in training, uh, is, is, I would say is different than gambling. And Nassim Taylor called that, uh, ludic fallacy. So you cannot, calculate all the probabilities and you're never certain that you're going to optimize for a certain metric. So the question is, how do we approach this stuff? You know, how do we deal? How do we make decisions that are not optimal, but robust? So the, the thing is, I think that, uh, uh, you know, I uh, kind of dislike the uh, titles of papers and articles on the optimal way of you know, loading mm. or using the optimal power or using the things like that. So it's optimal in, 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 within the constrained world of the, of the column of the, of the model and not sure yeah. if it's optimal inside the big world of the complex. And w- what's more important in a big complex world is robustness of making sure that a certain, uh, training approach is, it's gonna, Mostly work, if that makes sense. It's not going to work perfectly. It might yeah. not create like a optimal scenarios, but it's going to, it's going to work. Like it's a good enough to actually work. And, you know, as you said, you are, we are tapping in the dark. And one way is to kind of probe the system. So rather than investing everything, you kind of probe things. Like as you go, you continue, you collect the information and you make better inferences, you know, what, what works with a certain athlete. And things are really dynamic. So things, you know, someone might be limited by, you know, certain qualities. You fix those qualities and, and the ugly heads of the hydra, the other, uh, limiters emerge. So for example, you might, you might have a fighter who's, uh, you know, really bad at counter punching and you improve counter punching and then you figure out, okay, now he's really bad at, you know, protecting from, uh, from, uh, body shots. So it, things are really, dynamic as you probably know better than myself so and we need to probe rather than to rely on certain evidence-based practice or other side on a historical best practices so we need to take yeah, them uh-huh. as advisors and but we need, we need to continue experimenting yeah I'm, I'm happy with that and i think that brings us back to what i think that the proper definition of evidence-based practices is uh which we probably can talk about in the next episode as well a bit is that um, a smart practitioner will use a lot of different channels, a lot of different sources of information to make a calculated decision. He will always be missing components of it just because we work in an uncertain environment. But in some ways, it will reduce the degree of uncertainty and the, and the decision is likely going to be better if it's going to incorporate a lot of different sources uh, in the decision-making process, which will include, of course, science, uh, research outputs, experience, uh, context, and the athlete's preferences. Do you agree with that? Uh, completely, and I think that's a great way to wrap this uh, episode. Uh, I agree. Uh, we're going to continue on this on this topic as we go for uh, next episodes, and I just wanted to say to the listeners, if you have any other topic you would love us to discuss please you know please be you know just make sure that uh, 
be free to, you know, shoot us an email or tweet or whatever. And we'll we're probably going to make sure that, you know, we, we discuss that uh, in the next few episodes. So thanks for your time, Israel. Uh, it was a Thank pleasure you. always to, always to talk about this. Uh, as mentioned in the first episode, uh, you are someone who has, uh, I would say, all three advisors in one person, you know, scientific background, comp- competition background and a coaching background. So which is fantastic. Ah. And it's always insightful to to have a chat with you, man. Same with you, my friend. Until next time.